Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Club Book with Will Schwalbe. My name is Stacy Hendren and I'm the manager of the Northtown Library in Blaine, part of the Anoka County Library System. I'm thrilled to host our featured guest and will be your moderator for tonight's event. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you about the unique series that is bringing him to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Now for our featured event. Will Schwalbe, he, him, his, is an acclaimed memoirist, entrepreneur, and publishing executive. His authorial debut, Send, Why People Email So Badly and How to Do It Better, first hit shelves in 2007 and is considered a modern classic among business professionals. However, most fans first encountered Schwalbe through the End of Your Life Book Club. In this intensely personal but widely relatable memoir, Schwalbe chronicles his mother's cancer diagnosis, treatment, and death, and how he shared reading and how shared reading experiences allowed them to enjoy, enjoy a deep conversation and connection in dark times. This was an Anoka County Library book club pick and led to deep conversation and connection in my community too. I highly recommend it. Schwalbe's newest book is We Should Not Be Friends, The Story of a Friendship. As the name hints, this latest memoir tracks an improbable but life-changing geek and jock college friendship over the course of four decades. After a short talk by our guest and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a bit more anonymously, not a problem. You can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Thank you and join me in welcoming Will Schwalbe. Wow, thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you for that marvelous introduction. Uh, 
Thank you to everybody who's here listening and watching. Uh, and I must say, uh, people who love libraries and independent bookstores and books in general are my people. So I couldn't be happier. Also, one other thing before I tell you a little bit about the book and before we go into questions that I have to mention makes me super happy is to see not just my a copy of my book behind you, but to see that it's bristling with little stickies and post-its like a porcupine. And for me, that's the highest, uh, best, the best site uh, there is. So uh, I want to start by telling everybody a little bit about We Should Not Be Friends, the story of a friendship, uh, in order to help you get a sense of what this book is about. So I'm going to take you back, way back, to 1980. And 1980 is the year that I started studying at Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was a classic student. I was a theater geek. I had come out uh, of the closet just after high school. And it was a very different time back then. Uh, so that set me apart from other kids. There was only really a small number of us who were out at Yale uh, in 1980. And I proceeded along my way, uh, made dear friends in walks of life that were very similar to mine. Uh, they were other theater kids. They were the odd mathematician, philosophers, historians, relatively studious people. Uh, in my junior year, I moved to California. I had written with a friend a television series uh, it had some interest. I thought I was going to make my fame and fortune on the West Coast, and I actually left college and moved out there. And this was a really exciting time in pop culture. I became obsessed with the artist who was uh, still then known as Prince, local hero I know. I also became obsessed with Adam Ant, uh, punk rocker. So when I decided to come back to Yale, uh, I looked very different from when I had headed out west. Uh, I know it's going to be hard for people to believe, but my hair was shaved on both sides. I had a perm down the center. I wore a turquoise acid-washed blue jean jacket, and I also wore a leather wristband uh, about that big uh, that was covered with studs. And... Uh, as I describe in the book, uh, I was elaborately disguised as someone who didn't care what other people thought of him when, in fact, of course, I did. Uh, it was a little hard readjusting to college. I had been an adult. I had actually worked in the film industry in another capacity. I had had a car and a life. And there was also something else going on that really changed my experience of college and life, which is when I was at Yale, uh, that final uh, junior year was when the AIDS epidemic was just beginning to take hold a little bit in New York, a little bit in San Francisco, and some other places as well. Uh, and I came back to college believing with some good reason that I might not live to see 25. So I was working on uh, hotline, AIDS hotline, a couple nights a week. Uh, and I wasn't anymore the typical student. Uh, one day when I was in my room, there was a knock on the door. And this came from a friend of mine from high school who was a year ahead of me in college. Uh, and through a series of events, uh, I was asked to join 
a secret society at Yale. And this was a very unusual secret society. This was one whose purpose was to bring together the 15 most different kids at Yale. Uh, it admitted women the very same day that Yale admitted women. So it was half women, half boys, half guys. Uh, and at first I thought, oh no, I don't need to do this. I have a life, I've, I've been out in the real world and I, this has no interest for me. But my friend who I really trusted used a couple arguments to convince me. One is he said that the food was delicious. Uh, part of the thing about belonging to the secret society was you had to have dinner with the other 14 kids twice a week and could never miss. So there was good food. The other thing he told me was there was a keg in the basement an unlimited account at the liquor store. And that sounded pretty good to uh, me at the time. And then there was the coup de grace, which was the place where we all met, which we called the hall or the tomb, had cable. Cable meant MTV, and MTV meant Prince videos. So I was still wavering, and he said, this thing is going to change your life. You got to do it. And I thought, what do I have to lose? If I don't like it, I'll just leave. Though twice a week did seem like a big commitment. There was one other strange thing about it too, which is part of the tradition of this particular secret society was that every student in turn had to give what we called an audit. And that was a presentation of everything you'd known from your entire life that could last anywhere from three to seven hours. I was a little skeptical about that too, but I thought, why not? So I showed up. And there were 14 kids I had never seen before. And they seemed interesting. And I looked around and I thought for most of them, yeah, these people could be friends. But there was one kid I looked at and I thought, oh, no, this kid is not for me. I, I do not need to be friends with this guy. And that's because this guy was the prototypical extreme jock. And as an out gay man in the early 80s, I'd seen the packs of jocks around campus. They seemed genuinely menacing. They often were genuinely menacing. And I just thought, no, I got to steer a wide berth from these people. Uh, and this guy, by name of Chris Maxey, everyone called him Maxey, uh, had arms so big that he had to cut a V in his Lacoste shirts. He was a legendary athlete. He had won the state track championship in the state of Pennsylvania, 10 o'clock one morning. And that same day in the afternoon, 3 p.m., he had won the state lacrosse competition. And he was loud and he was obnoxious. And that first day in the hall with the other kids, he was the kind of guy who was like, think fast. And then he'd throw a beer at your head. And I just thought, nah, this, not this one, not this guy. I'll just, I'll just keep away from him. But as you may have guessed by We Should Not Be Friends, the story of a friendship, I was very wrong about Chris Maxey. Uh, it is fair to say that he was a little prejudiced against me when we first met. But more to the point, I was far more prejudiced against him. I made all sorts of assumptions that were unfair based on who he hung out with, how he presented himself, and the very fact that he was a jock. Uh, and over the course of that year, so we told each other our stories as we went on a retreat together. And then over the course of the 40 years that have followed, 
I realized that this guy is an excellent guy. He's a guy of absolutely superb values. And he's gone on to have a remarkable life. He left college and became an officer in the Navy SEALs, served for six years. He became a high school uh, teacher in New Jersey. And then he founded with his wife the most extraordinary school on the island of Eleuthera in the Bahamas that teaches kids how to be scientists, teaches them to love and care for the environment. And, and this is very important, it teaches them not to make snap judgments about other kids or other people based on superficial things like this one's a theater geek, this one's a jock. Um, so right before I go to questions with Stacy, I want to do a little bit of a, it's not a spoiler because I don't do spoilers, but reveal what I would say is one of the most important things I wanted to get across when I wrote this book. And it's something quite simple. It's that I believe, first of all, I should say, I don't believe we can be friends with everyone, but I believe we can be friends with a far, far wider group of people than we might otherwise think because a far wider group of people than we might believe from first impressions share our values. And so uh, my great hope for this book, this discussion and going forward is that it'll help people celebrate their own unusual friendships uh, and it will uh, help them look to wider circles to become friends. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Will Schwalbe. I um, feel like you answered a bunch of my questions already, and I'm just so excited to continue this conversation or to start this conversation. Um, oh, we can be friends with so many people. I love that. Thank you so much. One of the things that really struck me about your book was how vulnerable and honest you were with readers which in the book is something that you struggle to do in your friendship with Maxie. So the first thing I really want to ask you is, how are you doing? How is Maxie? How's David? How is Pale and the kids? Thank you for asking. So um, Maxie is fantastic. Uh, we went on our part of our tour together. He, as I said, is an awesome guy with the most awesome values. He's still really obnoxious. Um, <laughs> he's still a chaos factor. Um, he loves to bring this conch from the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. You, know, you mentioned that in the book. To start every meeting or every reading. Uh, and uh, we were, he was, he's a ride. He's great. Pam, uh, Maxie's wife, came with us uh, and uh, for part of the tour, and she's fantastic. Uh, David uh, Singer is the David you were asking about, uh, or David, my Your husband. David. My husband, David, is great. Uh, he uh, he hasn't read the book yet, but it <laughs> took him six years to read my last one, and he seemed to have stalled out on page 45 of my last one, and I kept saying, do you like it? And he'd say, yeah, 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 I really like it. So, But uh, he, he frequently felt there was uh, something more interesting to watch on television, so... Uh, he's very supportive nonetheless. Uh, uh, Maxie is just, being on tour with him revealed to me again and again, just what a great guy this is and how much poorer my life would have been had we not become friends. Oh, wow. Oh, thank you for that update. Um, how did, I mean, it's great to hear that Maxie went on part of the tour with you. How did you broach the subject of the book with Chris? 
what was his reaction? Oh, it's so funny. And Stacey, I have to say that whenever anyone says Chris, I think, who's Chris? And then I have to say, oh, yeah, Maxie, Maxie. And his parents came on part of the tour with us, too. And they would talk about Chris. And I'd say, who's Chris? And then I'd say, Maxie. Um, the book had an interesting evolution. It didn't start the way it is now. What happened was, I so admire Maxie that for years I encouraged him to write a book. I just said, oh, you have to write a book about being in the Navy SEALs, about starting this school, about the environment, uh, and about your love for the ocean and your new life as a, a yoga person, all this. And for years, he didn't do it. And finally came to me and said, you know, Schwalbs, which is what he calls me, I'm really busy. I need someone to help me. Do you have anyone? And I thought, I want to help you. That would be so fun. <laughs> so I volunteered. And then I thought, no, nah, I don't want to help you. I want to write a book about you. And so that was the next plan. He was on board for that. And I had the most marvelous editor, publisher, a man named Sonny Mehta, who's one of the great publishing figures of all time. And Sonny was famous for long pauses. He would pause in a conversation, sometimes for a minute or two minutes at a time. And someone had told me before I met Sonny the first time, don't step on his pauses. He has something <laughs> to say. He'll say it quietly. He'll say it once, and if you miss it, he'll never say it again. So we went to lunch with another marvelous editor named Dan Frank, uh, and I told him my idea, this biography of Maxie and what it was going to be, and then he gave an epically long pause. And after a couple minutes, he said very quietly, I think the book you want to write is about your friendship. And I said to him, you're absolutely right. And I went back that day and I told Maxie, I want to write a book about our friendship. And Maxie said, I'm all in. Oh, was Maxie part of the writing or editorial process in any way? He was part of the, as I said, we're two now 60-year-old guys. Um, and he was part of the remembering. We spent hundreds of hours remembering. It was so fun and so rich. Um, we spent time with the other people in the secret society remembering and everybody else. But mm -hmm. Maxie trusted me totally on the book. And I said to him, when I'm done with the draft, the first draft, I'm going to send it to you and your wife, Pam. And anything you want out comes out. And if you want to kill the whole project, you just say the word, I pay back the money. Uh, and we, we forget about it because there is no book that is more important than our friendship. And I sent it to him. I was pretty apprehensive because uh, I wanted him to like it. And he called and he said, there's only one thing I want to change. He said, don't take out a thing, but there's just one thing. And he said, I understand if you don't want to do it. But he said, I'm head of a school. And it sounds like we drank an awful lot. <laughs> So he said, would you please, if you don't mind, take out just a little bit of the drinking. And for anyone who's read this book, it causes them to laugh because I swear I took out a third of the drinking, if not more. And people read the book and they say, man, you guys drank a lot. But that was the only change. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. I love the, um, you know, the beer on the roof. And getting uh, yes. to the roof. <laughs> the beer is on the roof. My uh, one one person read it and said the most overused phrase in the book is "after many beers, comma." <laughs> <laughs> well, 
We have one of our viewers just ask, does Maxi still have a have to cut a V in his sleeve? <laughs> I think either Maxi's muscles got smaller or the Lacoste shirts got bigger. But uh, no, Maxi does not. No longer has to cut a V. A Maxi, oh. in addition to the two sports I mentioned, was a uh, nationally ranked wrestler too. So his arms were much bigger back then. Uh, oh, much bigger than mine or probably your arms. But he's still, I mean, you talked about, is Maxi still Maxi? On the tour, we were traveling um, partially in the Northeast three weeks ago, and Maxi went swimming in the ocean every day. Of course in, he did. Uh, Crazy, yes, of course he did. So um, kind of on that note, have you been free diving yet? <laughs> so uh, as, as you're referring to in the book, Maxi is obsessed with free diving, going down into the ocean, as, as the readers all know of this book. Uh, and uh, he really wants me to try. I will try, but I don't think I'm ever going to succeed in doing it. I can't control what he calls the mammalian diving reflex, supposedly something going back to the start of when whatever they were called came out of the ocean and went onto land for the first time. We're supposed to, our heartbeat is supposed to drop when our face goes in water, but mine races. I love the water, but I, I, I panic when oh, I'm down God. low without a tank. And he goes deep. Oh, he goes deep. I feel like I know him and I know you for after reading this book. So thank you so much for that. Um, <laughs> another one from our uh, viewers. After many beers, comma, who do you read or who are writers that you revere as a writer yourself? So that is my very favorite question. Uh, <laughs> it used to be when I appeared in bookstores or libraries, whoever asked that question, I had a book at hand to give them as a gift. And every tour, it was a different book. One year, I gave them all Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, whoever asked oh. that question, which is one of my favorite books. So... Uh, going back, I revere Christopher Isherwood, uh, who is best known today as the writer who wrote the Berlin stories that were turned into the play, musical, and eventually movie cabaret. Yeah. Uh, and he had an amazing approach to memoir, which I, I hope informs mine, which is when he wrote his memoir, Christopher and His Kind, he would say, Christopher went to Berlin. He said it was for this reason. I know it was for that reason. And he had a divide in his mind between who he had been and who he was, and they're not the same person. So that's one, one author I revere. Louise Penny. I adore Louise Penny. Uh, and I envy anybody who's watching and listening who has yet to discover her work. <laughs> uh, recently, uh, Danny Shapiro's book, Signal Fires, uh, is a great one. And uh, this writer, Jerome Charon, who should be much better known than he, I mean, he's extraordinarily well known, but he should be better known. And this novel is heaven. It's called Big Red, and it's a novel starring Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. So that's what I'm on now. And we should remember that title because that's what Maxie called his mom, right? Is that right? Exactly. Maxie Big called Red. his mom Big Red. Everybody calls her Big Red. So fun. Tying kind of close to that, um, so I love memoir, and you do not disappoint with this title. Can you talk a little bit more about 
you talked a little bit about what you hoped people would gain from the title, but can you talk a little bit more about what memoir means to you? So I, uh, people sometimes ask me what I write, if I introduce myself as a writer, and I always describe myself as a serial memoirist. <laughs> so memoir to me is quite literally what I remember. And I'm scrupulous about fact-checking my memoirs. I fact-check every detail I can. I call or contact everyone who's mentioned to make sure my stories are true and accurate. But to me, when a memoir is working and it's emotionally true, the facts should be as true as you can possibly make them, but the emotions need to be true. And I think in a memoir, what I love about memoir is the writer takes the reader on a journey through a part of their life, often focused on a particular theme or thought, uh, and allows you to meet them on the page. And the other thing I will say where memoir for me is such an important category is when I was talking before, and you and I have been just talking, Stacey, uh, I, had it not been for the secret society, would not have met Maxie in person. But now everyone can meet Maxie because he's on the page. And when I go to the memoir section of my local indie bookstore or my local library, uh, I can have access to an incredible variety of lives from all over the country and all over the world. And as I've been traveling, I've been giving everybody a really weird instruction, which is to say, go to your library, go to your bookstore, and either take out or buy a book that doesn't interest you. And yeah. that way you'll expand your world. Mm -hmm. So Going to me, that does it, it, it expands our world by introducing us to people. And one other thing I get very excited about this topic is remember when I mentioned the audit, uh, which mm -hmm. is our, as everyone who's read the book knows, that epically long presentation of our life mm -hmm. uh, that we give to the other 14 kids. Uh, that's, that's what a memoir is too. Is, mm -hmm. And when another kid was giving the audit, you were quiet. And you let them say whatever they wanted to say and talk as long as they want. And as a reader, the writer, you're quiet. And they get to say whatever they want to say and talk as long as they want. And you take it in. And I think that's also such an important thing in society today is to listen to each other's stories in person and on the page yeah. quietly and without judgment. Quietly without judgment. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. We do have, um, apparently there's a little bit of flare up in Facebook saying Pachinko is fantastic. So shout out there. Fantastic. Um, jumping off of what you said, can you talk a little bit about how libraries or independent bookstores have influenced you over your lifetime? So there's actually a story that I told in Books for Living, which is my previous book and part of my ongoing, oh, there it is. I love seeing that. And I love, well, so it makes me very happy. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so as, as lonely as it was in some ways to be an out gay student at Yale, 
it was far lonelier to realize when I was in high school at an Episcopal boarding school in New Hampshire that I was gay because there had never been an out gay student or teacher at this school, not once in the history of the school in the late 70s. And as, as I mentioned, I wasn't the most athletic of children. So uh, when the other children were doing their sports things, uh, I would go into the library just for my own time, take books off the shelves. And I should add, I was a happy kid. I had friends, um, I, but I, I did have these periods of intense loneliness. And there was a marvelous librarian named Miss Locke, and she made the most delicious cookies and brownies, which were always <laughs> there, blondies as they were, in fact, for me. Um, but she got me, and she started leaving books on the reshelving cart for <laughs> me, she thought I might like, without having to put them in front of me. And one of them was uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Wow. And I remember seeing it and picking it up and going to a quiet corner of the library and reading it. And it was a revelation. I mean, it's a, it's a book that ends quite tragically, very tragically, but it also showed a vision of a kind of life for myself that I could scarcely imagine. And uh, it was really marvelous at reunions. I would come back every time and I would tell Miss Locke the effect she had on my life. So that's just one example of a library changing a kid's life and making him feel not alone. And that story is very special to me. But even today, libraries and bookstores are refuges. And I go up to booksellers and librarians. What are you reading? What should I read? <laughs> Find some of my favorite books that way. Oh, yeah. I love love just the, give me something you like. And they're, they always say, what? no, what do you like? No, what do you like? What give me something like? new. Yeah. Um, I'd like to touch a little bit you, you know, you talked about growing up gay in the 70s and the 80s. Um, so early in the book, you talk a lot about gay rights, Yale's non-discrimination policy that didn't include gay rights, and your work on the gay men's crisis and AIDS project. Will you share more about that work and what or if you're doing anything now? So, uh, what I didn't mention when I gave my little bit of a setup about uh, why I moved to California, the TV series that I'd written, I'd written with someone I had known all my life who had become really a second father to me mm -hmm. uh, and a mentor and a friend. And his name was Larry Kramer. And Larry was an extraordinary writer. At the time, he was most famous for having written the screenplay for the adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love and having produced the movie, which starred Glenda Jackson, who won an Academy Award for it. Uh, and so Larry uh, and I wrote this crazy TV series together that sold, but never got made. Uh, and when I came back, Larry was one of the founders of a group called Gay Men's Health Crisis who were, I believe it was seven men who came together when the number of cases of AIDS were, I think, under 100. Wow. To start talking about how to galvanize our community. One of the others was an absolutely marvelous uh, writer named Ed White. Larry Mass was another. There's an extraordinary group. 
So through Larry, I had a very early look into this. Um, as it happened, there had been someone who I'd been intimate with in Los Angeles who, uh, though there was no test for anything then, it was clear to me that he had died of a mysterious illness that I came to realize was almost certainly AIDS. And so that was my feeling of, gosh, I may not be long for the world. And I wanted to do something, partly maybe to stave off panic, but partly because I wanted to. So while I was two nights a week at the secret society, I was also one or two nights a week on the AIDS Project New Haven hotline. And it was an extraordinary time. There was, at that time, by my senior year, there were under 1,200 cases of AIDS uh, in the country uh, and around the world. And we had no information and nothing good to tell anybody. And it was an extraordinary experience being uh, 20 years old, being on the phone with some men just a year or two older than me, some younger, who I just had nothing good to tell them, but I was there to listen and, and try to point them sometimes in the right direction. Uh, so it was a difficult, difficult, painful time. I grew up fast. Uh, and uh, Larry then went on to found ACT UP. Uh, and uh, so your question about uh, how today my, my involvement, uh, Larry very sadly died in 2020 and made me and his husband the executors of his estate. And so part of my work now is carrying on the legacy of Larry Kramer and oh, trying wow. to make sure his words live on in the world, uh, which uh, is a great honor. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, um, ugh. I'm going to jump in a different direction because that was heavier. And um, just, yeah, we're going to jump in a different direction because that was heavier. So I thank you for that and for sharing your story. Um, and then we had another comment that came through. Libraries and librarians are the best and must have entity <laughs> in communities. Um, thank you for, for that. Um, as a librarian, I love hearing that. Um, so I think it's really interesting when authors start a book with a quote um, and enjoy reflecting on how it ties to the book. You not only had one quote, but you had three quotes at the beginning of your book. I wonder if you could talk about how, um, what they are and what they mean to you. I would absolutely love to. Uh, thank you. Um, so... I was sort of greedy this time because I love choosing the quote for the start of the book and I wound up with three and I love them all. And so I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to do all three of them. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I really wanted to do in this book is show what a friendship looks like over 40 years. And uh, I'm glad we're switching gears too, because while there's a lot of serious stuff in this book, there's some of the stories that I just told you. There's Maxie's service in the Navy SEALs, which could be a very serious matter. There's also just a lot of silliness, a lot of laughs, a lot of crazy times. And, and uh, that's, I think, what a long-term friendship is. Sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's goofy. Uh, but one of the hallmarks of our friendship and so many long-term friendships is we often lost track of each other lost track of ourselves for a bit. We went on occasion 10 years without talking. 
Uh, sometimes we were worried and we defended one another and, and just wouldn't reach out for many years. Um, and to me, that's part of the warp and weft of friendship. And so the first quote, all friendships of any length are based on a continual, sorry, a continued mutual forgiveness. Without tolerance and mercy, all friendships die. And that's from David White. And I love that quote. Maxie loved that quote because you got to forgive yourselves and you got to forgive each other if you want to have a long-term friendship. The second quote is from Amor Toll's A Gentleman in Moscow, one of my favorite books, amazing book. And I won't read the whole thing, but uh, he talks about how human beings are so capricious, so complex, so delightfully contradictory that they deserve not only our consideration, but our reconsideration and our unwavering determination to withhold our opinion until we have engaged with them in every possible setting at every possible hour. And I love that because even your dearest friends, and Max, he's a very good friend of mine. He's not one of my best friends, nor am I one of his sort of best friends, if you define it that way, but we love each other. We're dear friends. And even on this book tour, I'm constantly finding out new things about him and he about me, just seeing how we move through the world. So that was the Immortals. And finally, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it best because he's Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson. Uh, and he said, the only way to have a friend is to be one. Mm-hmm. For me, that says it all. Oh, wonderful. If I had to choose one, I would have just chosen that, but I like the other two. I loved all three. And it just made me laugh. I'm like, there's three. This is great. Three. Yeah. Tells, you know, because it talks about, it tells about you, not just the book, but your choices there. Yeah, it was danger of turning into a quote book on friendship, but uh, there we are. So. Some pictures of, you know, adorable cats and everything. With pictures of adorable cats, cherubs. Those two, you know, the Botticelli, was it Botticelli, the two little cherubs? Someone will correct me if I'm wrong, if it wasn't Botticelli, but the, uh, uh, yes. And I do love, I don't know if other people listening do this. I love visiting my books. So I'll just go to the bookshelf and pull something off and flip to a page. And almost always the perfect quote leaps out at me. Mm. Mm-hmm. I um, I think it was in your acknowledgments, you, you said something about at home, I, I'm a librarian, outside, I'm a bookseller, um, but always a reader. Yeah. Like, yeah, find the book that you need at that moment. Exactly. At home, I'm curating my collection. Um, when I go out into the world, I'm imploring people to read the books I love, but but I'm always a reader. And that is another thing that was really fun to write about in this, which is Maxie's a doer. Like, let's go sailing, let's go diving, let's go bicycling, let's go running. And I'm a reader. I'm like, let's go to the living room <laughs> to read. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Yes, but Max is also, to be fair, he's also a reader. He was just a closet reader. <laughs> um, I have a couple of questions that were submitted that I'm going to just throw out. Um, one is, is the Secret Society still active? The Secret Society is fantastically active. Uh, one of the amazing things about it is it, it is... As I describe, it's in this two-story limestone windowless or almost windowless building on the edge of campus, but it is very well paid for, supported by the alumni, so that none of the kids pay a single cent. Uh, It's still active. It is still drawing the 15 most extraordinarily different kids, and they bond for life. So, yeah. 
Has there been any issue with um, you so publicly talking about the secret success society? <laughs> I was nervous about that. Um, I, I don't say which one it is. Uh, and uh, a couple nights ago, we had a uh, private Zoom for members of the secret society. And we got huge numbers. And I started by quasi apologizing and everyone said, oh, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, they absolved me of any guilt I had. Um, we do have some fun secrets, but I didn't um, reveal those. And, and I will say also, which I take great pains to make clear in the book, um, it is a warm, friendly, welcoming place um, that is designed to celebrate 15 different kids, not, not make them conform. So there are no obnoxious rituals to join or anything like that. Mm. Um, <laughs> one um, viewer said, I haven't read the book yet, but heard some interviews. I'm curious if Will has visited Maxie in the Bahamas and what else he can tell us about the island school. That's such a great time. Thank you for to the listener viewer for asking that question. So I have visited Maxie many times in the Bahamas. Uh, the Island School is an extraordinary place. Uh, it's for high school uh, juniors or seniors, mostly juniors, to do a, a term abroad for which they get credit. Uh, one of the incredible things about it is when a kid arrives at the Island School on day one, a big bag comes out and the kids put their phones in the bag and they do not see their cell phones for a hundred days. Uh, and they're allowed to talk to their parents. I believe it's once a week for 15 minutes and that's it. And Maxie has imported some of the best values of our secret society to the Island School. One of the things I love is in the first couple of days, he lets them socialize with whomever they want. And people divide up like by like. Uh, and he watches, as did the other faculty, to see who the friend groups are. And then they go on a kayak trip, and he breaks the friend groups up. And he makes kids who haven't had anything to do with each other sit in the same kayak and go on the same trip. And those are the pairings that become friends for life. It's 20 years old, the island school. And people have come up to me at reading after reading and said, you know, Maxie, separated me from my natural friend group, threw me in a canoe with this kid, kayak, not a canoe, what do I know? Uh, <laughs> kayak with this kid, and they'll come with their arms around each other and they'll say, now we're, we're friends for life. But it's also about uh, rediscovering the environment and it is also about empowering young people. They don't study science, they do science and they get their names on scientific papers. They look after uh, each other, and they stewards of the place. And one of the most moving things about it is in the early years, the kids were mentors to local smaller children. And then the kids would go back, some went back to other parts of the Bahamas and some went back to America, leaving the local smaller kids bereft. Like I thought that was my friend. And so Maxie and his wife, Pam, started a uh, grade school in the community in Eleuthera. And he said, it's astonishing. It gives little kids the same experience that the older kids have. And he says, if you asked him, if you could only have started one of the schools, which would it have been? And he said, it's the, the local grade school. And he sent all his four kids there. <laughs> um, another viewer says, I read that you once aspired to be a playwright. 
Do you think you will ever revisit that early passion? And what can fans expect next from Will Schwalbe? So I did want to be a playwright and I may someday revisit that passion. The thing that I love about book writing is I don't need anyone's permission to do it. And even if a book has an audience of one, it can still find its way to that audience. And as a playwright, that's a tough road because yes, some people read plays, but it doesn't reach its full meaning unless it's performed. And you need permission, you need a director, you need actors, you need some kind of funding. And so uh, that, that caused me to abandon playwriting for many decades. Oh but I know what I want to write next. I'm so excited about it. My husband is saying, oh, well, please, can we just have a couple <laughs> months without you either writing or promoting a book? But I, I'm too excited about it, but I can't say what it is. So I all have something to look forward to. Wonderful. Um, another one coming through, what advice would you have for an aspiring essay essayist who has no literal literary training, but has lived a lot of life? So it's that's such a great question. Well, the first thing that I would advise uh, is advice I would give to any writer in any genre, which is read. And read as promiscuously and as broadly and as widely as you possibly can. And, and get caught up in the book. Allow yourself to be swept away. But then go back and think, What's happening? What is this writer doing? Why does this work and, and not that? I would also advise anybody who's thinking of writing anything to make a beeline for their local library shelf or indie bookseller and buy a copy of Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Okay. And Bird by Bird is, I think the subtitle is Some Instructions on Writing and Life, something like that. I know and it's on our library shelf. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll just very, very briefly, it starts with a great story. When little Anne Lamott was a little girl and she had a little brother and she comes down for breakfast and her brother is, I'm, I'll get this somewhat right, her brother's sobbing hysterically because he was supposed to write a term paper on the birds of North America. He was supposed to work all term on it. It's due the next day and he has not yet begun. And his father says, what's wrong, buddy, when he sees his son sobbing and the son says, uh, tells the story and says, I, I don't know how I'm ever going to do this, get this paper done. And the father says, bird by bird. I just start. So my advice to the writer is just start. But again, it's about emotional truth. And can you share some emotional truth with other people? And that's more important than any story that you relate. Mm. Sorry, I'm having my pause moment now. <laughs> um, looks like Universal Agreement, Big Huzzahs, read the amazing writing by Anne Lamott in Bird by Bird. So many people agree with that advice. Many people agree with that. Good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, it's, I also love, and, and excuse the use of this word, but she also in that book, and this is other good advice for our um, person who wants to engage in this, she uses the term a vomit draft. <laughs> and uh, a vomit draft, and I do vomit drafts, is just when you get it all out there. You just 
spew onto paper um, because books are made in the editing by the author, not in the first draft. And I mentioned before Christopher Isherwood um, mm -hmm. was my favorite writer. Uh, and Gore Vidal called him the finest prose stylist of our time. His prose was that good. But Isherwood said if anybody had ever read one of his first drafts, they would consider him the worst writer in the English <laughs> language. So get it down, get it on paper. Don't censor yourself. Don't edit, get it out. Oh, wow. And then books are made in the editing process. Yeah. You know. So talking about books, um, what books are you reading now? So um, as soon as I finished Jerome's, um, I always have them, <laughs> my, my thing at hand. Um, this is what I'm going to start next, which is uh, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. And everybody know is I know is mad crazy about it. And I am a David Copperfield nut. Uh, <laughs> if I actually had to say not my favorite writer, Isherwood, but my favorite book, it would be David Copperfield. That book just slayed me when I first read it, and it, it does so to this day. So I'm really excited to see how she riffs on it and expands from it. Uh, and I will say, and I, I David Copperfield uh, taught me a really valuable lesson about books and why they're so important. And this is something I've written about before, which is as a teen reading that book, I was bereft when it ended that I thought that I would never be able to spend time with David and Steerforth and little Emily yeah. ever again. Mm -hmm. And I soon came to realize that, that they now were part of my life and that I talked to David and I talked to Steerforth, that, that they're part of me. And in fact, once you, once you finish a book, you spend the rest of your life with those people. And that's another thing that reason I love memoir. When I wrote the book about my mother, The End of Your Life Book Club, People were very curious and they said, did it make you sad to write about her? And my answer was always, if I go a couple of days without thinking about her, that makes me sad. But the remembering is really joyful. So I spent, I, I, whether it's a character in a memoir or a character in a novel, all of these people live with me. Oh, wonderful. Wow. Um, <laughs> one of the things you talk about is just the importance of friendship and I love at the end of the book you talk about the like breathing and you and Maxie do the breathing I was wondering if you had any words of advice to all of us who would hope to develop a decades-long friendship and who want to take a breath but maybe can't quite go to the Bahamas <laughs> okay um the breathing is a very pivotal thing in this book for me and in fact in the early pages of it I say that Maxie taught me how to breathe. And then I spend the rest of the book explaining what I mean. So one of the things in the book, uh, as people know who have read it, is, and don't worry, it's not too much of a spoiler, but uh, at one point in our friendship, Maxie develops a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the man he calls his father, who is genuinely his father, an extraordinary man, was not his biological father. His biological father was in the military and died when Maxie was a toddler of a brain tumor. So the brain tumor is a very scary thing, as it would be for anybody, for Maxie and his family. And Maxie made himself vulnerable to me. 
he he shared with me his fears and anxieties. He let me visit him in the hospital hours after the book, uh, sorry, hours after uh, the operation had taken place. He let me spend time with him as he was regaining his strength and was so dizzy he needed an arm to, to lean on. In the book, I talk about developing a chronic illness called small fiber neuropathy. And uh, I did not share that with Maxie. I kept that to myself because I thought being a friend meant, oh, being a good friend is helping your friends when they need you, but you, you look after your own business. That's what being a friend is. And it's one of the few times in our friendship, Maxie got really mad at me. And he called me on it. He says, BS, like, I want to be there for you. And I realized, and this is one of the sort of great lessons of friendship that I wanted to impart, is that the greatest gift you can give your friends is to allow them to help you. And when I opened up to Maxie about the neuropathy and the pain and how it was often hard to sleep, and, and he said, let me help you. And Maxie's a diver, Navy SEALs, and he's a yoga person, and he's a very spiritual person. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. Mm -hmm. And he taught me breathing exercises to do when there was breakthrough pain. And it, it was an incredible gift in and of itself, teaching me how to breathe. But what's more than that, it made our friendship a million times stronger, that it was in vulnerability that we became even closer friends. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. So as we um, get close to the end of our very, very fast evening together, do you have any final comments for our viewers or things you want to make sure that you share? Uh, so one of the things that, that I really want to get across uh, is uh, this idea that it's really never too late to kindle an old friendship mm -hmm. and that friendships that were forged at important parts of our lives, whether it was grade school or summer camp or a, a first job is often an incredibly important thing that brings us together with each other in intense ways. Maybe it's a production of a play we were on or a sports team. It doesn't have to be a crazy secret society. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's really just a matter of reaching out to those people, uh, no matter how much time has passed, uh, in whatever mode you feel comfortable, uh, and just telling them that you're you're thinking of them and that you treasure their friendship and you want to know how they're doing. So that's a very important part of the experience for me. And of the 15 kids in our secret society, uh, one didn't go through with the experience and, and one died as people read about in the book, but of the 13 remaining ones, 10 either showed up at my first reading or were in touch. Uh, and we've made the effort to keep in touch with each other. And, and I just can't think of anything more important. That's wonderful. And sorry, one more, you had so good to hear I have a talk about one other really, really important thing. And it's a funny little thing, but I love mentioning it is I used to introduce Maxie as, this is my friend Maxie, uh, he was a Navy SEAL. And mm -hmm. I learned not to do that. I say like, this is my friend Maxie and he taught me how to uh, breathe or this is my friend uh, Maxie and he has four kids who I'm crazy about or this is my friend Maxie who uh, 
makes the best pina coladas, whatever it is. <laughs> stop defining our friends by what we do in life and and describe them in our hearts and when we go out into the world by by who they are. I would say this is my friend Maxie. He has awesome values and he's loyal as heck. Oh. Well, Will Schwalbe, thank you so much for all of that. Thank you for much so much for your time, for being vulnerable in this book, for being honest, for sharing your advice and your comments and your stories, not just in We Should Not Be Friends, but in all the books that you've shared with us. We had a comment just come through. Oh my gosh, I just bought the End of Your Life book club and didn't realize that Will wrote it. Um, <laughs> it is now moving to the top of my TBR pile. So, so exciting. Um, so yeah, it has been such a pleasure and I'm just honored to have had this time to speak with you tonight. Oh, well, thank you, Stacey. I loved, I love talking with you. I hope this is the first of many conversations we have. Oh, I would love that. I, um, I have many questions that I didn't ask you tonight. <laughs> Still curious. That's what the rest of our lives are for. We've got, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great night, everyone. That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Will Schwalbe. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Janie Chang. Janie Chang is the author behind Dragon Springs Road and The Library of Legends. Her historical fiction is inspired by her Chinese ancestry and that culture's rich folkloric traditions. Chang's newest novel, The Porcelain Moon, spotlights the untold story of 140,000 Chinese workers brought to Europe during World War I. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.